This episode is brought to you by Stuck In Between Card Games. Check out stuckinbetween.com to grab the drinking game or the conversations game, currently at 25% off. A portion of every sale between now and January 31st will be donated to charitable organisation Palmera to support the important work they do to empower underprivileged people in Sri Lanka. Each game sold will help provide a month's worth of food to a person in need. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that this episode was recorded back in July. Recently, Neil's collaborator and friend Jordan Shanks had his house firebombed in a malicious attack. Nothing about that or the outcome of Jordan's legal case with former Deputy Prime Minister of New South Wales is addressed in this episode as these took place after we recorded this podcast. Neil has also since dabbled with different forms of content, which we obviously didn't get to ask him about. So don't forget to check that out on his socials as well. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we chat with the one and only Neil Colehacker. For those living under a rock and are unfamiliar with the name, Neil is an Aussie comedian, actor and podcaster making waves on so many different fronts. Neil started his media career over 10 years ago and we very much remember watching his videos back then and has now over 80 million views on YouTube, 1.2 million TikTok followers and is shaking up the stand-up comedy scene here in Australia. On top of his work as a comedian, he also runs two really thought-provoking podcasts. Sex Cells and Neil and Jordan. Neil discusses what drew him to comedy, his rise to fame, the relationship between freedom of speech and comedy, stereotypes put on comedians, his self-help journey and so much more. So without further ado, here's Neil. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Neil. Watching your videos along with Superwog was actually how I used to procrastinate <laughs> studying back in high school. So it's awesome seeing how far you've come since then and it's great to connect with you like this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I'm in the same ilk as Superwalk. That's really <laughs> nice to know. Yeah, the funny thing is, Sandin and I, we're uni mates. And I think it was in 2015 or 2016, you'd actually come to our uni to do a comedy show. And the two of us, along with some of our mates, came to watch you. And I've got a photo with you, but I can't find it. It was on my old phone. I've really got to try to dig it up. <laughs> so we've come full circle. Oh, I'll bring it up. I hope you can find it during this podcast because I love looking back at myself. Even just seven years ago, I looked like a baby. So <laughs> so long ago, right? <laughs> well, before we get into a little bit about you, Neil, how has 2022 been treating you? Uh, good and bad, just a mix of emotions. You know, at the start of the year, it was catching up from all of the disruptions due to the pandemic and the successive lockdowns. And I've changed a lot of what I'm doing. I've changed the structure of how I do my live shows and what I'm posting online. So uh, like you guys, I also had an existential crisis, I think, during the two years of lockdown. So I just was navigating all the new variables in regards to those career changes. But overall, it's been very fulfilling and fun. And I've been trying a few new styles of live show and and a few different things online and I think I'm more of a TikToker now than anything which is a (laughs) bizarre twist it's uh, weird being a man in his late 20s doing TikTok full-time but here we are (laughs) I mean you're killing it in TikTok so you're doing something right and we'll come back to a few of the things you mentioned in a little bit but from going two years of being in a lockdown and not being able to perform stand-up to now 
things starting to get a bit more normal again, was it a big adjustment process to get back into the flow of things or was it just like hopping back on a bike? It was fine in terms of the performance because I have been doing it for a very long time. So maybe it took a two or three gigs to get back into it. And because the lockdowns were three months in each year, there were still times where I was performing sporadically throughout those years. But it's more, like I said, the style of shows that I'm doing. I'm doing a bit more improv now, doing shows with a lot of other comedians. And uh, that that's probably been the biggest adjustment for me, just getting used to that and navigating a lot of those other voices in in the business side of things and in the performance side of things. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned it before that you're making a lot more TikTok videos and things now. Your art form takes many different forms, right? But do you, I guess, ultimately enjoy being on stage and doing things live or do you enjoy producing video content a little bit more? Well, if the audience is laughing, then I'll probably have to say that I enjoy the live stuff more. You're in the moment, the energy and the enthusiasm in a room with an enthusiastic audience is nothing quite like that. Having said that, when I've made short films or music videos or things that I've put a bit more time and effort into, those can be extremely rewarding as well. And and they go hand in hand. I mean, they both have their advantages, but if I have to choose one, I'd have to say the live shows. Yeah. Live stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like posting content on social media is almost more scary, right? Because it's reaches so much more and that video is just out in the internet realm (laughs) forever and can just be resurfaced at any point. Which one do you find more daunting to do? If I ever look at the comments on a video that's going viral that I know will likely be controversial, that's daunting and I I try to avoid that. But just human nature, we want to see what people are saying about us. And look, people have no filter online, so they can be quite cruel uh, in the comments. But usually at a live show, you don't get that. You don't get people Mm. at the end of the show saying that was absolute rubbish and I can't believe this guy has this many followers. So I would say... Yeah, online can actually be more daunting, ironically mm. enough. I was listening to, um, I think, your most recent Sex Sales podcast and you're talking about how you do take on board some of the comments that you read, whereas like some are absolute garbage, just trolls out there. How do you differentiate the ones that you actually do take on board? Usually if it's a follower that has articulated some form of respectful criticism, then I'll definitely try and take that on board and I'll I'll look at the overall tone of the comments as well so if there is a large amount of comments that are saying a specific thing I think then Mm. it's worthwhile taking that on board but if it's just a one-off comment particularly on Instagram or TikTok then I usually just ignore it or don't even look at them yeah Yeah. Yeah, there's only so much you can absorb right otherwise your head would explode oh absolutely you you can tell when people are new to hosting content online because they get annoyed by comments very easily and then they're thinking Mm. about it for the whole day whereas well, with the TikTok algorithm the way it is, you almost want 10 to 20% negative comments because that's what actually gets the engagement and gets it going out there in the For You page. Mm, yeah, good point. I guess taking a few steps back to how you first started doing comedy, you left a degree in economics, which I would say is a subject that most brown parents will probably you know, hold highly up there, maybe after being a doctor, lawyer or engineer. Um, but you left that to obviously pursue a career in comedy. Was there a moment that you realized like, oh, maybe there is something special here when it comes to comedy? Yeah, when I, well, I was starting to get recognized at uni and I was, Um. you know, I was selling small theaters while still at uni. So at that point Mm. was probably when I realized, well, if I'm ever going to try and pursue it full time, now would be the time. I don't want to wait. So 
I went for it and thankfully my parents were okay with it. My mom mm. for a long time was always subtly hinting that I should go back and finish the degree, but I, uh, <laughs> I never did. So I'm one of the very few brown people out there with no tertiary education. So, Well, you've proven that you don't need one, right? Exactly. Um, that's exactly it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You've spoken in the past as well about how you're really passionate about acting, leaving mm. high school and going to uni. What pulled you more towards comedy away from other art forms that you were interested in? It's the level of control you have over comedy uh, with mm. acting. You're so dependent on casting directors, producers, your look, what the industry is like at the moment. And of course, you still have to rely on the whims of the industry with comedy, but not to the same degree. It's, it's right. primarily on you. you. You know, you perform at open mics, you have to be funny and you have to continually perfect the art form. So I was really attracted to that. Did you have anyone when you were going from, I guess, comedy, just posting videos online to something which you thought you could do more seriously? Did you have any mentors, anyone you looked up to, to guide you or how did you go about perfecting your craft? Well, uh, like you said, at the start of the podcast, I actually looked up to Superwog a lot as well in high school. Mm. So I remember when they first went viral, I was in year 10. So I admired them and what they had done and, and how they'd carved out a niche audience and really represented the authentic Western Sydney or just, you know, that sort of more multicultural urban Australian style. And I thought it was brilliant. And I could see that, I guess, the mainstream industry or the, a lot of people in comedy weren't really as fully aware of it as I think they could have been. And a few others popped up, but I'd say they were the big guys that really got me into online content. And what about now? I know you spoke with Jordan quite a bit on some of your podcasts about the comedians that you look up to and how you can pull from different people in different ways. Is there anyone that you kind of mould your comedy after now or anyone that you aspire to be when it comes to the comedic scene? Yeah, when I was younger, I always looked up to Chris Rock and, uh, of course, Russell Peters. They were the two guys yep. that I always admired. And I, I think I saw a Russell Peters DVD when I was 10 or 12, and that was a big turning point. I thought, oh, I would love to do that one day. Right now, I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. There's no one. There's people I still look up to, but... I wouldn't say I'm molding my career off anyone because, you know, it's so different for the people who've already established themselves in America mm. because the media and comedy ecosystem has changed so drastically that I just don't know the way they did it in the 90s and the 2000s. I don't think it's clear that that's a sort of viable pathway or avenue for yeah. my career right now. So in many ways, it's breaking new grounds. And I'm not just saying that I'm just doing that. Everyone who's online now, all the comedians in their 20s are doing that because, you know, there's just so many new avenues and it's almost like a, a wild west of comedy and, and media in general out there. So it's tough in that sense. You don't have the previous institutions that were so good to uh, up and coming comedians, but you also have a lot of new territory to explore, which is exciting. Mm, yeah, and speaking of Russell Peters, I mean, when you think about South Asian comedians, he is one of the first ones that come to mind, right? Because he's been around for so long. He was probably one of the first brown Canadian, I think he is, to really take off. And I remember snippets of his first show doing the rounds with, you know, family and friends. But when you think about it in hindsight, I feel like maybe Russell Peters and his humour might not quite translate the same way today as it did maybe 10, 15 years ago. I think like we're also reflecting on him and his 
jokes and his humour and himself as a person, he kind of fell into this box of like he's an ethnic comedian who can only joke about ethnic or race-related things. Did you feel at any point also being, you know, a South Asian Australian comedian that you had to fit a certain mould or only speak to particular issues in your comedy because of your background or were you defined only by your South Asian-ness? I tried as best as I could to avoid that. So I would limit the amount of content I uh, made either online or on stage referring to my uh, cultural and racial background. But I didn't feel like I was directly put into a box. I know a lot of people sometimes would expect certain ethnic jokes and, you know, I do them. I enjoy them. I like uh, some comedians avoid that entirely and think that it's selling out, but I disagree. I think if it's done well, it can be hilarious. But yeah, yeah, I always wanted to make sure I could perform a a broad range of comedy and an audience wouldn't just expect one thing from me. So Mm. I've been relatively lucky in that way. I, I, I haven't felt like I've had to just tread down one path in terms of the content that I'm producing. Yeah, that's great to hear that you didn't feel that pressure. Something that I don't know if you felt the same way, Neil, but something that we've spoken about on the podcast before about is how sometimes you feel this expectation of what it means to be South Asian, like there's a box and you have to fit that mold to be considered a good Indian or a good Sri Lankan. But we sometimes forget how much diversity we have within South Asia itself without translating that same diversity of what that looks like and what it means to be South Asian in diaspora communities. What's your relationship like with your culture? Because I think that's something that we're starting to unlearn now is that, you know, there's not one right way of being South Asian. You know, we come in so many different forms and that's okay. And we need to embrace that rather than fitting into this mold that we might be expected to be based on what society or all the family members or whatever define that to be. Absolutely. I mean, there's 2 billion people in the subcontinent, so it's pretty ridiculous to think that (laughs) it's all going to be one monolith. So, yeah, I have definitely gone through very different phases. I think when I was younger, I held on to my Indianness a lot more. And I think that was partly due to just it being a large facet of my identity growing up in that people sort of saw me that way and would describe me that way. And then you know, I, as I got older, I actually realized that, well, I'm quite westernized. Like, it's a bit foolish of me to sit there and say, like, I'm, I'm so Indian and I've done this because I don't, I only speak English. Obviously, there's still the cultural ties there and that the way I was raised and, mm. you know, my, both my parents are immigrants. My grandparents came here quite a while ago. They came here in the 60s. But I don't have a clear answer to that because mm. if someone was to ask me, I, I'd say I'm Australian with racially Indian background. And I still have some cultural ties to that facet of my identity, but I'm predominantly Australian. But yeah, as I'm sure you guys would know, it's complicated when you grow up here Mm, because you don't really know what to say or which path to go down. Yeah, that's a whole angle with stuck in between, right? Mm. Like you're sometimes too white when you're around your brown circles and then you're too brown when you're around your westernized circles. So you're always in that weird middle place. And I think what we found as an adult now is that rather than looking at being stuck in between as a negative thing, it's actually a really beautiful place because we can pull from these two different cultures in ways that we may not have appreciated growing up. Mm. Um, just to the point around being pigeonholed, 
Romy and I came across your two podcasts, Neil and Jordan and Sex Cells during the 2020 lockdown. And we've been massive fans ever since. Oh, thank you. For anyone who doesn't know, Neil and Jordan is your podcast with Jordan Shanks, who's a comedian and political commentator. And you talk about everything from history to politics, to culture, to self-help. And then there's Sex Cells, which is cells with a C. And that's a podcast you have with a relationship therapist named Eliza Joy. And you unpack psychology, gender dynamics, relationships, and so on. And I think through that podcast, we get to see a really deep and reflective side of you, which personally, I'm not surprised you have because you have produced some really nuanced short films in the past where we have seen that depth. But being a comedian, um, whilst you do have all these different sides and layers to you, do you feel like you're often branded as the funny guy and you're kind of misunderstood because you are a comedian and you might have people thinking that you need to stick to your lane and just be a funny guy. Is that something that you've discussed with other comedians also feeling like you have to fit in this bucket and be stereotyped in this way? Yeah, uh, sometimes I've definitely felt that way. And, and that was a big reason why I started those podcasts. And I wanted to be able to converse with someone like Jordan, who's also a comedian, but everyone would clearly know has a very serious side to him, uh, as do I. So those podcasts have been so fulfilling. I, I've been able to just show that different side and not have to continuously prove in my comedy, hey, look, I've got more to me than just these voices and these impressions yeah. and these sometimes controversial jokes. So yeah, I felt a little bit of that pressure. I don't, I don't think I felt it as much as some other people who've been in the spotlight for a lot longer. And I also think it's a complicated question because then there has been a movement of comedians, particularly in the mid-2010s, who I would even argue maybe went too serious and it's not that they should stay in their lane per se, but you know, there are experts in certain fields and when a comedian is trying to, you know, shut down an expert or trying to sort of converse with them on an equal playing field, it's never going to be the same. And, and then there are some comedians that just stylistically haven't been able to move into some of that talk show political commentary as effectively as some other comedians have. So I don't think it's fair when people, you know, expect comedians to just be clowns and turn it on at any mm, second. Yeah. But at the same time, I think uh, a lot of comedians can be quite insecure thinking that everyone perceives them as that clown and maybe try too hard to be serious. So look, it's a complicated question. And ultimately, I'm just so grateful I have those podcasts yeah. and they have listeners like you guys because I don't feel any pressure to be funny on those at all. Yeah. And yeah. I just love talking at the end of the day. I yeah. love talking yeah. to both Jordan and Eliza. Yeah. Romy and I always share different podcasts with each other to see how we can learn from them. And we always use Neil and Jordan and Sex Cells as examples because we're like, we're not going to talk to these issues on our podcast, but the way you articulate yourselves, you can see you and Eliza processing your thoughts as you're articulating yourself. And it's so clear and concise and it flows so well. So we're always just like, yeah, how can we learn from these guys? So genuinely really love what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it's good that you do have those different avenues to showcase different parts of yourself, right? Because it doesn't put pressure on yourself to be both things while you're doing comedy or to be both things while you're doing the podcast because it covers two different facets to you. So I think you've done that in such a great way where you are able to channel yourself differently through these different mediums. 
Thank you. Thank you. What the, I haven't asked much about you guys. What do you guys do as your uh, day job? As our day jobs. So um, I'm a marketing consultant, but I work with B2B marketers and consultants okay. on how they can use my company's products. I work for like a media company. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, doing some of these extra shows that I'm doing now, I'm thinking a lot about particularly digital marketing. And it's an interesting space. Like I was saying with comedy, I was just changing I feel like marketing from an, somewhat of an outsider's perspective, like every six months it changes and, you know, there's a new platform of which to market and to have a new strategy here, the digital strategy. So I don't know if you found that, but it looks just equally as frustrating as entertainment. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's actually changed a lot because I'm in the B2B space as well. So it's very different to consumer products okay. and it's IT specifically. So it's even more niche. So over time, the landscape has changed a lot, particularly in that area. And like you're working with six-year-old marketers sometimes who were around when things are very different. So it's hard to like drill new ways of doing things into them. But I'm sure that's the case with any industry that you go into. Definitely. Yeah, dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> I, up until last Friday, I was working in the very exhilarating and exciting world of pricing <laughs> analytics for groceries. Oh, okay. But as of next Monday, I will be working as an analyst for Southern Cross Stereo, which oh, yeah. they own like Today FM and Listener. Yeah, I know them. Yeah. I can technically call Hamish and Andy my colleagues. True. There you go. It, it would be interesting to just see how, more so just in terms of the way that Australia operates culturally, I feel like you could gauge a lot based on some of those analytics, you know, like what sort of demo mm. listens to which sort of show and you know when there was a particular segment on a show yeah, was there a yeah. spike in listenership and what does that mean about what people like and you know you could probably get a very interesting insight into the listener psychology from that mm. hopefully and maybe some cheeky plugs for stuck in between uh that too <laughs> yeah thinking um Neil, one of the things we want to also chat with you about is your style of comedy. Um, it's super observational and it intertwines a lot of social commentary as well. So although you're still funny and you're not being too serious when you are doing your jokes, you still do take a lot of what's happening in society and kind of intertwine that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned just before too that some comedians are getting a little bit serious now and maybe a bit too serious for comedy and we've heard like on your podcast as well about how you've spoken about being woke and pc culture is really getting in the way and maybe taking away a little bit from the art of comedy how do you factor that in when you are writing your material is that something you're conscious about yeah and it's a constant learning curve because when I'm passionate about something, it's usually when I write the best comedy, but it's also when there's the biggest risk of it becoming preachy. Right. And I've definitely released videos and jokes that I now look back on and think, yeah, that was just more me yelling rather than actually trying to be funny. So I really try to see everything from all angles and just prioritize the humor. Mm. But it uh, doesn't always happen. I think when I use some of my colleagues as a soundboard, that's very effective. But it's still a learning curve because, you know, when you're posting a lot of content and constantly having to write jokes, it's always a struggle to find that, to walk that tightrope between opinionated comedy and just being opinionated because opinionated comedy can be some of the funniest comedy there is. But if you're just being opinionated, well, then comedy is probably not the right medium or art form for you. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask, do you do any writing that's not comedic? Yeah, sometimes occasionally make some videos that aren't comedic although i've taken a break from that now i think that was also like a pandemic thing but generally speaking i try to just weave comedy into it 
anyway. It just comes naturally. If anything, comedy is more powerful in a serious speech or video because yeah. no one's expecting Palatable. it. And if, exactly. If someone gets on stage and is giving a very serious speech about any given topic and they throw in a few jokes, it, it just lightens the tone and it definitely makes it more palatable, like you say, whereas when it's just comedy and people are expecting comedy, there's, if anything, more pressure. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And I think freedom of speech is an interesting point to bring up here. And we should caveat this and say, you know, in the context of a country like Australia, when it comes to sharing your thoughts openly online or on a public platform, for example, I guess on one hand, we say we have the freedom to say anything we want. But at the same time, people might come for you if you exercise this freedom to say something that they disagree with. So it's kind of like, you know, freedom of speech can exist until you disagree or agree with what they say, like depending on the situation. You know, obviously it's important not to run your mouth and say something cruel and insensitive. But what is your thought on something like freedom of speech existing in Australia, particularly when it comes to comedy and politics and what's recently happened. I'm not sure if you can speak to that, but, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, I think there's the difference between a culture of free speech and the legal implications of there being general freedom of expression. So people aren't getting arrested necessarily. I mean, I, I don't know, with this new online safety bill, it's a bit foreboding and scary there but generally speaking in this country no one's getting arrested for their political views having said that people get fired or deplatformed or cancelled and things like that but it is a complicated issue because as much as i detest that general culture i also understand that these are private companies and what are you going to do have the government come in and just create more regulations that say these companies can't i don't know fire an employee that said something that they think brings a company into disrepute. So they are complicated issues. And I think it comes down to culture more than anything. And we probably should be wary of not just accepting of more views, but just I think people should try and look inwards and see where the tribalism may exist within themselves before, you know, we start criticizing the purported tribalistic world that we live in. I think there's a lot of that in ourselves and I think it's got to do with the crisis of identity people are having and also the echo chambers that are created online due to the, well, the profit incentive off the big corporations that control a lot of our means of communication. So this is an extraordinarily complicated issue. And look, I think the overall effect on comedy has been negative, which is sad, but it's not as simple as, oh, people need to just allow anyone to say whatever they want to say. I think there are just so many factors involved with something like this. And I like to think it'll just sort itself out naturally but mm-hmm. i actually think it was worse a couple of years ago to be honest right. but having said that like i did a video about the online safety bill in australia and that is a very scary proposition so mm-hmm. i wonder if we are treading down the path of authoritarianism there but in terms of the culture of free speech i actually think it's improved in terms of comedy mm-hmm. i'd say that it peaked maybe three four years ago or so and and then there'll always be little bursts of well, you know, political correctness and self-correction when a prominent social issue comes to the fore. But I think it's slowly heading towards a reasonable middle ground. And how much, I guess, when you're creating your content, do you think too much into all of this before you release something or go ahead with a joke? Or do you kind of write 
what you really want to say and then pair it back depending on what you think the reception might be like. Does that ever cross your mind? Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of both. I'll, I'll often just write what I want to write, but then think about it and also try it at smaller rooms and see how it goes. And I'm lucky. I, I guess I've just developed a bit of a, you know, people sort of know me as the comedian who will occasionally push the boundary. So no one's surprised and no one's watching my content expecting sanitized videos or jokes there. So I'm lucky mm-hmm. in that sense. I'm grateful for that sort of an audience. So I occasionally won't release a video or, or a joke because I think it's just that seesaw between funny and offensive isn't the appropriate amount, but it's pretty rare. Usually I'll just say it and gauge the response and then either cut it out of my set or improve on it. Yeah. I mean, for one of the many reasons why I would not succeed as a comedian, putting my sense of humor aside, <laughs> Romy can attest to that. Um, I don't think I'd have the confidence to deal with situations like managing hecklers and maybe if a set doesn't go too well and bombing, not having the confidence to bounce back from that. How do you go about navigating those things? Because it obviously does take a lot of courage and confidence to be doing what you do. Is that something that you always had or is that something that you've developed with all the experiences you've had as a comedian? It develops uh, just like riding a bike. You start off Mm. petrified of having to interact with an audience, particularly if they're heckling you, but eventually you develop some tactics to deal with those I, I, look I don't get too many hecklers it's rare that people actually go to the show to be a nuisance I think some people are just very drunk and want to contribute to the show and they're pretty easy to shut down and often can help people you know remember the show so very rarely do you have people I mean in my 10 12 years of doing this I can think of maybe two or three incidences where there was someone who was genuinely malicious and saying, you, you, you know, you suck your shit, get off stage. So it's a very rare occurrence. I know the comedians often now posting videos of them shutting down hecklers, but yep. you'll see there's not often people who want to bring down the comedian. It's often just people who've had a bit too much to drink at the show and say something stupid. And then right. it's, look, the comedian has all the power really. So for a comedian to not, take that opportunity and make it funny is actually if anything that's a skill they need to develop so it doesn't happen as often as some people may think and to me dealing with an audience that's not particularly enthusiastic is far worse that's one of the hardest things to do sometimes an audience just for whatever reason the mood and the vibe is quite lackluster and then it feels like work and I can attest to this that having doing the exact same set the exact same jokes night after night to a different audience can have a very different effect interesting what do you do in those situations if you find that you know one night the same set takes off and the audience are really engaging with it and then another night for whatever reason they're you know a bit lackluster like how do you kind of navigate that situation yeah again there's um certain tips uh, and you know tricks of the trade to get people on side and enthused about the show so Mm -hmm. more emceeing duties there like you would see before a music concert or something like that just general tactics to amp up the crowd and get them clapping get them in a good mood but it doesn't always work and you just have to power through your jokes and adapt your delivery to make it appropriate for the energy of the crowd but still trying to push them into a better state so there's a limited amount you can do but the really good comedians are able to bring a crowd back from the dead it's a good skill 
Yeah. Um, I always have really vivid dreams. And recently I've been having this occurring dream where I'm on stage performing something and I've completely forgotten what my next lines are. Um, have you ever had one of those moments? Because again, if I was to put myself in the shoes of a comedian, that would be also something that I'd be petrified to find myself in a situation like that. <laughs> I don't know if I've been in as uh, extreme a situation there, but the ultimate goal for any comedian is just to not actually care about the outcome. Mm. You know, that's actually, you can link that to sort of self-help concepts and relationship concepts. The less you try and control the outcome, the ironically better the outcome will be mm. more often than not. So if the comedian gets on stage thinking, uh, I don't care if they laugh or not, I'll probably get paid, whatever. I just have my jokes. I think they're funny. We'll see what happens. They're usually going to do the best. So yeah, it's, it's tough. Like if you come out off after a bad gig, you know, it's hard not to feel low after that, but I've done it enough now where you can generally detach from a poor audience mm. response. Yeah, that's awesome. Thinking back to your career, I suppose, like to me, some of your most iconic content was the stuff from about, you know, 10 years ago, the YouTube videos, Teenage Girls, <laughs> Australia in two minutes. I think I contributed to like a million of those views. That makes me laugh every time I watch that video still. What's it like reflecting back on the success and where you've come from and everything you've achieved since then? Yeah, it's still very surreal when I look back at how long ago those were as well. Yeah. This is over nine years ago, so that's a long time. <laughs> so, yeah, it's surreal. I don't even know how to think. And those early videos were just, they were a blur. It just all happened so quickly. It happened in the space of six months or so, a lot of those really early videos where I was in my bedroom mm. at the time. And I guess I had built up a lot of ideas and potential for videos over the course of my teenage years and early adolescence. And I just let it all out in those <laughs> videos and they, so and they did pretty well. And I'm, I'm still probably riding that wave. So yeah, it's, um, you know, you see some of the younger TikTok people come through now and kind of have that buzz about them. And it's an interesting place to be in, you know, when you're particularly, I was 19. So it was, uh, very weird everywhere I go I get recognized <laughs> and it's pretty surreal and it still feels weird when I get recognized you know I just feel like I'm doing a job yeah it's hard to put into words it's just very uh it's irrational it's surreal that's the best way I can describe it yeah yeah my um roommate and I quote from that video so much like whenever someone's <laughs> like chopping up like a carrot or something they'll turn to the other person with a knife and then I went Pull that quote, but I think we all were talking about yes. <laughs> so <good>. iconic. <laughs> yeah, I still get yelled at in the streets, and one day someone's actually going to make that threat, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You want a photo or what? Oh, I love it. Um, and you've recently set up Comedy Untamed, right? Which is a super cool project. Can you tell us a bit about that and the long-term goals off the back of that that you're hoping to achieve? I'm super excited about this. So this is a brand of shows that showcase a lot of the up-and-coming comedians in Australia that haven't been uh, given as many opportunities by the industry and ones that I think deserve a lot more credit and appeal for what they're doing. And it's a mix between a comedy show and a variety show. It's Australia's wildest comedy show. It's in the name, Comedy Untamed, like nothing is censored. It's not a very formulated, you know, proper gala slash theatre show. This yeah. is just a bunch of comedians, mostly in their 20s, getting on stage, 
experimenting, taking creative risks, bantering with the audience. And then we do those uh, games that you've probably seen online. And then we do improv. The whole second half is improv. So it's technically a comedy and improv show. And improv is just a very unexplored art form in this country. And it deserves more credit as a really engaging live medium. And Daniel and I have been doing improv since we were in high school, actually. So we sort of reconvened and have grown that into a one-hour show in itself. So you basically you get two shows if you come along. And, yeah, the shows are hopefully going to become a hallmark of the Australian comedy scene and they're going to be all over the country regularly and they're going to showcase great up-and-coming comedians and people can come back because there's always going to be different comedians and improvisation in its very nature is going to be different and you're just going to experience a very fun wild uh loose show and that's i think what australian comedy should be all about Mm. not the very refined polished comedy that you seem to be seeing on some of the biggest stages right now uh I, i think that's good and i think it has its audience don't get me wrong but comedy should also be uh you know wild and in you know underground little circuits and bars and and this is what like you know in the 90s the grunge scene of rock we're sort of trying to bring that back Mm, but with comedy in australia and that's what i'm trying to do like create a new sort of vibe of comedy that's sick um romy and i are actually trying to coordinate with our friends to come out to one of your shows so we're really looking forward to seeing it in person and i think just going back to what you were reflecting about you know nine ten years ago you're putting out content online for you to be in a place now in your career where you can establish something like this, where you're platforming other up and coming comedians. It's so cool, right? That you've come this far and you're in a position where you can be doing this and growing the Australian comedic scene in such a great way. I think that's something that you should be really proud of to be able to do. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to do that. But you know, look, it benefits me too. I mean, there's just more content to be made. So that's great. Uh, but yeah, that, I think the biggest reason I'm doing it is to showcase what some of the undiscovered comedians in this country are capable of. And there's a general sentiment of disappointment in what people are seeing on TV and no disrespect to the comedians that are doing that personally, but there are just so many different styles out there and Comedy Untamed is not one of those, uh, you know, sanitised corporate shows. It's wild. It's untamed. It's anything could happen. And that usually makes for the best comedy where Mm. creative risks are permitted and in fact encouraged so that's how I would describe that show and yeah thank you I'm trying to hopefully the other comedians can not only enjoy the show but enjoy getting out there and having that exposure yeah yeah for sure and it's also cool seeing the comedians think on their feet like you can see them processing it kind of getting nervous about saying something that they've just thought about on the spot and then when they get it out even if they don't get the best response you can see their reaction to it being like oh yeah okay i'm gonna get it next time so it's cool seeing that working rather than having something a bit more i guess scripted um i guess just on a bit more of a serious note one of the things that we really admire is your commitment to self-development and self-care and Eliza makes jokes about this on sex cells where she says you know every episode Neil is doing something new to better himself how do you go about being so disciplined and focused on constantly improving (laughs) um look uh, maybe I definitely put that facade out there on sex cells but look I'm not perfect yeah I have my flaws and it helps not having a full-time job I'll I'll say that much you can definitely do a lot more self-care that way but I think I realized when I was maybe in my early mid twenties that you never sort of get to a point where you're finished. Mm. The individual, the person is a continuously improving 
sentient being you know you're never gonna if you sit on your laurels you'll end up atrophying and I think I found that out the hard way in certain aspects and I think it's fulfilling but it also gives me meaning and purpose and direction to have various behaviors or facets of my career and my life that I want to continually work on and so I don't even feel like I have to discipline myself to do most of those things. Mm. I'm lucky that it comes naturally and I continually want to better myself and encourage to do that because it's so enjoyable looking back after two or three years of working on one particular thing and seeing how far you've come. It's very rewarding. Mm. Yeah, good on you for that because it's not easy to stay disciplined. I think it's easier to talk the talk, but it's harder to walk the walk. And a lot of what you talk about with Jordan, I guess, is how everyday people can make those changes or start to make those changes. We want to close with a few rapid fire questions if you're ready. Okay. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Who are your favorite Aussie comedians? You can't go past Carl Barron and I like Tom Gleason and Mm -hmm. Kitty Flanagan. Go with them. Nice. What is one book you'd recommend people to read? Uh, In terms of relationships, I'd say mating in captivity and for self-help, Oh, look, the Mark Manson ones, as basic as they are, I think yeah. they're fantastic. They're good. And uh, let's just go with mating in captivity. It says a lot about not only relationships, but human psychology. It's very different. Oh, a- another one that just popped into mind that I think is becoming increasingly more relevant by the day is Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind. I think that's fascinating. And just last week, I read a book called The Intelligence Trap. That was very interesting. Any of those, they're great. So many yeah, man, we'll check them out. Where's your favorite place to perform? Uh, look, I can't go past the venue where I uh, started in high school, actually, in the theater sports competition, and then I've done a few solo shows there, so the Enmore Theater, but nice. also Potts Point Hotel, where I do the weekly comedy on Tame show. It has a lot of sentimental value to me, so those two. And uh, I love the sit-down comedy club in Brisbane. It's really beautiful, so if there are any listeners in Brisbane, they should go and check that out. They have comedy nights on all week. So that one's a really good one. And of course, the Comics Lounge in Melbourne. So those four. <laughs> nice. What is a self-care ritual of yours that if you don't do regularly or if you miss, messes with you the most? I definitely can't go past working out, but <laughs> you'll probably laugh at this. Uh, studying for a little bit every morning. So because I didn't actually go to uni, I, I always felt like I had to make up for lost time and in 2020 I because of what happened when with working out is at first it was it did feel like work and I had to discipline myself but then it just became such a staple in my routine that I genuinely enjoyed doing it and I thought well why can't I do that for something that I absolutely detest like studying and (laughs) I sort of pushed through some of those lockdowns where I just tried to you know just study a different subject for a couple of weeks each morning And now actually, yeah, I feel a bit like I didn't do it today and I I just felt a bit off. So I feel like I really need to do that now, which is good and bad because then I don't get any work done. (laughs) Well, it depends how you define work, but I'm always late in emailing people and posting content because I'm too busy reading about, what is it now? Art history, medieval art. So I mean, at least it's a healthy excuse, right? It's not like you're, you know, sleeping in because you were binge drinking or something like that. (laughs) I mean, I do that as well, but, you know, then I study the next day. So, <laughs> Teach me your ways. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite aspect of South Asian culture? The food. No, I mean, no, no other culture comes close to the food that South Asia has been able to produce and create. So the cuisine is fantastic. I just can't go past that. 
Agreed, agreed. The food's so good. Um, who is your dream person to collab with? Ooh. Russell Brand. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Your yeah. impersonation of him recently was amazing. <laughs> Laughed that hard in a while. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I'm, clearly I'm a big fan. So <laughs> yeah. would love to, uh, whether it's on a podcast or maybe even a comedy sketch of some sort, I mean, that would be fantastic. Mm, awesome. Well, I guess as a way to wrap up, Neil, I think you mentioned at the beginning of this year that you were writing a book. Is that correct? How's that going? Yeah, look, I've been meaning to talk about that on the podcast. I wrote some of it and then I actually got to a point where I was like, I feel burnt out having to do this for an hour a day as well. So it is on hold for now. So I'll say that here. Thanks for reminding me as well. (laughs) (laughs) But look, it's good. That's another self-help thing. Give yourself like a challenge that you think is insurmountable and then you'll push yourself to a point that's actually feasible. And I'm glad I did do that for the first three or so months of the year. And it's more of a long-term goal now than a short or medium-term goal. So (laughs) that's how it's going. But I think I'd still love to finish that one day. Mm, Yeah, I think it's good that you're not putting too much pressure on yourself as well because I feel like sometimes when there's a hard and fast deadline, you might feel like you're rushing your way through something and then not actually putting, you know, everything you have into that project genuinely, whereas... Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And, you know, there's just so many sort of self-help cultural commentary books out there right now particularly so I'd also want to think about it a bit further and I think it was a bit of a snap decision but I probably wrote you know a fair chunk of it and I'll leave it for a later date and we'll say that. Nice nice we're keen to get our hands on it once it does come out eventually no pressure though. Okay. Neil, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and getting to pick your brain a little bit about a space that Romy and I aren't very familiar with. Um, we absolutely love what you're doing and can't wait to see where this next stage of your career is going to take you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great podcast. I had a lot of fun. Keep at it, yeah. Thanks, Neil. Cool. Bye, guys. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. This episode was a bit of a full circle moment for both yeah. of us, watching Neil come onto the scene when we were growing up. Absolutely. It was so much fun talking to him. You can see more of Neil on Instagram and TikTok at Neil Kolhatka and be sure to catch him live with Comedy Untaped. Details are in the episode notes. And with that, this marks, Sandin, the last of our guest episodes for 2022. Let's go. What the heck? <laughs> it's the end of the year. But we do have one last episode before we wrap up season two, and it's an exciting one. Because in it, Sandin and I have a chat, answer your questions, while it's maybe sipping on a drink. We'll see. What do you mean maybe? We'll definitely need to be having <laughs> a drink to celebrate another season in the books. And it's been a while since we've done an episode just a two of us. Like Romy said, we'll be doing a Q&A sort of thing. So stay tuned on our Instagram at stuckinbetween underscore podcast for how you can send in any questions that you might have. And maybe we can even answer some questions from our conversations game as well, Romy. Mm, that's a good idea. Nice plug for our card games available at stuckinbetween.com, by the way. <laughs> nice follow up to that. I can't wait for that one. We'll catch you then. Bye.